Morning, everyone. This morning we have um, we're, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter three, verses one to six. So I just want to start before we get into it, um, just by reading the word of God. So I'm going to use the NIV version. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write: These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people inside this who have not sawed their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who's victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> our passage for this morning. So we've, over the last few weeks, we've been studying Jesus's letters, to the seven churches in Asia. Um, and just remember, let's rewind a little bit, John penned these letters while he was exiled on a small Greek island off the coast of Turkey. And they were written to churches along a Roman trade route. But all of the seven churches we're reading about were part of the Roman Empire. They were under Roman rule. And that's something that we often skip over, but it's got real significance for us as we understand what life would have been like for Christians in these churches. Cities in these seven churches, um, the cities that see these seven churches were situated in were really diverse. Asia Minor, which is the name for this area, was a thriving trade hub with people, cultures, religions from far and wide, all congregating together there to buy and sell their goods. So the Roman Empire had to find a way to keep the peace between all these different groups of people. And what they did was what any ruling empire would probably do. They adopted all of the festivals, all of the practices, all of the rituals from all the different religions and cultures and wove them together under an official umbrella of the empire. And what this did was it appeased everyone, allowing all peoples to practice any religion that they wanted. But in doing that, Rome was really clear that this freedom was granted only because they allowed it. People could worship their gods, but Rome owned them. People clearly understood the message. Things would only go well for them and their freedoms would only continue if they recognised that all true authority was held by Rome. Now, this power dynamic would have affected a lot more than just personal worship. The pagan temples in these cities ran the economies. They handled all the money, they did the banking, they organised the trades, they sold the food. If you wanted to be successful in one of these cities, if you wanted to grow your business, if you wanted to become someone of stature, then you had to be seen in these pagan temples on festival days, rub shoulders with the important people and to get the temple authorities on your side. So your involvement in temple life, if you're a citizen in one of these cities, directly affected your standing in the community, your job, your money, your possessions, your acquaintances, your entire future. We read in Acts 19 
um, the uproar in Ephesus when Paul challenged the temple authorities. We're not going to look at that story today. It nearly cost Paul his life. And when we read that account without context, it just sounds a bit weird. But when we understand how entire cities at that time revolved around the economy of the pagan temples, we start to get a little glimpse into just how much power the culture that Christianity was opposing had. And that's really important when we realize that all the seven churches would have been founded on the principle of separating themselves from the pagan culture around them. To be a Christian and to be part of one of these seven churches would have meant withdrawing completely from society, disrespecting the Roman Empire and setting themselves up as enemies, not only of the state, but of every political, social and economic system that existed. It wasn't an option for Christians in any of these churches to keep their religion private and to go about their normal business as good Roman citizens. By refusing to worship idols and participate in the life and economy of the temple courts, Christians would have been giving up the best opportunities available to them in these cities. And there was no way to do that quietly. They were conspicuous. They stood out. They became targets for mockery, hatred and violence. The high price of following Jesus for Christians in these seven churches and these seven cities was to live in quiet, painful opposition to a society and economy that was always against them. This picture of life under Roman rule reverberates throughout the Gospels. It's particularly noticeable in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, which we studied together recently. What Jesus teaches is, is diametrically opposed to the worldview, culture and expectations of Roman rule. Jesus paints a very clear picture that following him requires completely upending the world system in a way that couldn't possibly be done in secret. Secret. The cost of following Jesus is clear. Everything you see and think is wrong. His kingdom values are completely different. And so being a Christ follower was very much revolutionary. Back to the seven churches. It's not like any of the seven churches had anything comparable to offer these newly found outcasts of society. I mean, they didn't have they didn't have money. They didn't have status. They didn't have government tax relief like we do. Didn't get their 25 percent. They didn't have children's work. They didn't have youth ministries. They didn't have great sound systems for worship. Christianity wasn't popular. And most churches met in homes. All they could do was meet for meals, teaching, prayer and encouragement and make sure none of their members starved to death. So in understated summary, it was really hard being a Christian and being part of a church under Roman rule. And that's the context of Jesus's letters to the seven churches, penned by John, a political prisoner, exiled on a small island who knew all of this only too well because he was already paying the price for being a real Christian. So Sardis, Sardis, today's church that we're studying, was the fifth city along that Roman trade route and the fifth letter in our series. We've seen themes across all the letters encouraging most churches with something that they're doing well, challenging most churches with something they need to do differently. 
and giving all churches a promise to those who overcome. We've also been seeking, listening, praying and fasting to hear what God is saying to us about our church in our place and our place in it here today across Epping Forest. So why don't we just take a moment before we get started to remember some of the things that he's been speaking to us about. What's he said to you so far in this series? Get your pen and paper from Anthony's amazing time of, of worship earlier and just take a moment to note down a couple of things. Use the pen and paper or just do it in your minds if you don't have that to hand. So that we've got a platform to build on in today's message. Just take 30 seconds or so just to note something down. Okay. If you're still writing, keep writing, that's fine. We're going to get into the meat of this passage now. So Sardis, although by now, um, and when I say now, I mean the point that this was written at, it, it would have been very much a working class city. Sardis was once the ancient capital of the kingdom of Lydia. Back then, Sardis had been ruled by a guy called King Croesus. Um, I'd never heard of him before, but um, when you do a little bit of Google search, there's a whole load of stuff about King Croesus. He was one of the richest men in ancient history. And his immense wealth came from the city's river that was rich with gold. Apparently, it was in this river that the legendary King Midas, and you all remember his name, washed his hands to rid himself of the Midas touch, transferring it to the river itself and the source of Sardis's wealth and power. That's how the legend goes. Apparently, the first gold coin is thought to have been minted in Sardis. And Croesus was the guy whose money funded the construction of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Remember that story we just talked about in Acts 19. And, one of the and that, that temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Julian spoke about that back in week one. So King Croesus was a rich guy and Sardis used to be a very big deal. It had a reputation as a great and glorious citadel, an impenetrable fortress, a wealthy capital, powerful and strong. By the time Jesus writes this letter, Sardis is most definitely trading on its former glories. It's really interesting that one of the first things Jesus talks to the church about is reputation. That's the history lesson over. Before we get into the letter itself, I want us to take another moment just to reflect on that word reputation. And I'd like you to note down a few thoughts or words that spring to mind when you describe when you would describe your reputation. What are you known for? What do you pride yourself on? Don't think too deeply about it. Just note down a couple of words or themes as we pause again for another moment before moving on. Okay. 
again, if you're still writing and still noting down a few things, keep going, that's fine. We're going to continue. Revelation, again, in, in great understated terms, is complicated. Many theologians have, have made it even more so by trying to explain its every word. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to keep things nice and simple for us, not just because I and most theologians don't really understand a lot of what's in it, but mainly because I believe God doesn't speak in riddles to his children. He speaks and we hear his voice. So apologies if you're expecting an in-depth study, but what I'm going to bring today is what I think matters to God and what he might be saying to us through this letter. So let's read it again. The angel of the church in Sardis writes, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who's victorious will like them be dressed in white. I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. We're going to start at the start. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. Contrary to the city's reputation of trading on former glories, this church had a reputation of being alive. Jesus very quickly tears through that facade and reveals their true state of being. We heard last week that Jesus is the one who searches hearts and minds, who uses a double-edged sword to cut away the armour of reputation and get right to the heart. We see the perfect knowledge and judgment of Jesus being revealed as he exposes the true state of those professing to follow him. So reputation. When you have a reputation for something, more often than not, you believe it to be true. It's likely that Jesus's revelation of death, where his church traded on a reputation of life, would have come as quite a shock to the followers in Sardis. When we think about churches today that have a reputation for being alive, it's easy to tend to think of churches with exciting ministries. Great worship music, awesome preaching, cool buildings, lights and sound systems, places where stuff's happening, places where the cool kids are at. Now, the church in Sardis clearly wouldn't have had many, if any, of these things, but it was clearly a church where things looked like they were going well. They likely knew how to do good church. But you see, the thing is, when we can do church well, we're in danger of doing it without him. When we can do being a Christian, a Jesus follower, then we're in danger of doing it without him. And that's a scary thought. And that's what I think had happened in Sardis. A bit of a creative license here, but 
imagine that they likely came home talking about the songs, the preacher, the coffee and the biscuits, who they saw there and who they didn't, what they think could have been done better, blah, 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 blah. But they likely weren't going home talking about Jesus and how wonderful, glorious and beautiful he is. If I come home from a church gathering and I'm talking primarily about the songs or the sermon, then I probably haven't truly met with Jesus there. If I had, I'd be talking about him. Think about that for a minute. So am I really encountering the King of Kings? Or am I actually just being entertained? What does being alive really mean? We could draw on so many scriptures here, but one of my favourites is John 15, where Jesus talks about abiding in him, the true vine. This is a beautiful picture of what it means to be alive, to be connected to him as a one true source of life. Disconnection equals death, but connection breeds life. And life means growth. Life means fruit being produced. If I'm truly meeting with and following Jesus, then it's impossible for me to stay the same. There must be growth. There must be fruit. There must be transformation. There must be life and life in abundance. Doesn't mean everything goes well. In Sardis, Jesus reveals the truth that they were dead, <laughs> disconnected to the vine. And therefore, there was likely no growth, no fruit. No transformation, no maturity, no life, despite having a reputation to the contrary. But even as we think about this now, it's really easy to pin all this onto the church, right? I mean, we've all got our gripes and our complaints about what could be better. The church is this, the church is that, the church isn't growing, the church isn't alive. But what we easily forget is we are the church. The church isn't some abstract, <clears throat> excuse me, the church isn't some abstract concept or thing that we get to point fingers at and criticize. The church is us. I am the church. You are the church. Jesus calls the church his bride. He died for us. He's coming back for this church. So when you talk about the church, don't forget who you're talking about. You're talking about the bride of Christ. You're talking about yourself, those on your left, those on your right. So if you want the church to change, the only place to start is with yourself. Jesus tells the church in Sardis that they're not alive like they think, but in fact they're dead. It was probably a form of godliness, maybe some outward practices that looked religious and good, but no power, no distinctive, no lasting fruit, no real life. Let's think about that a moment. We can do what looks right. We can be kind. We can not kill anyone. We can help others. We can go to church on Sundays. We can even read our Bibles and say our prayers. We can think we've got our ticket to heaven, but in reality, we're simply wandering around not much different to the world around us. There's nothing that sets us apart. We just look like we're doing the right thing. 
but we're no more alive than all the other dead people walking around. What's all that about? Who exactly do we think we're following? It's not Jesus. And who do we think we're fooling? The only eyes that we're pulling the wool over, I'd suggest, are our own. But the really scary thing here is that as well as deceiving ourselves that we're okay, what we're also doing is reinforcing for everyone else around us the lie that this is what following Jesus looks like. When I read the Gospels, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, when I read the letters to these churches, when I read anything that Jesus tells us, wandering around like a zombie conforming entirely to the pattern of this world around us and thinking we're fine couldn't be further from following Jesus. So Jesus' start to this letter is cutting. And it doesn't get much better quickly. Let's look at the second bit. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. This isn't about what looks good in our sight, but about what's acceptable in God's sight. In Isaiah 64, we read, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. In Philippians chapter three, we read, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Filthy rags, garbage, worthless. So often we can get really busy doing stuff for God that we fail to realize that we've stopped listening to him and have stopped following him. We can sugarcoat it all we want, but at the end of the day, there's no better description of our godless busyness than rubbish. We can never do anything that meets God's standards because he's perfect and everything we put our minds or hands to is not, no matter how good we think we are. So does that mean that we should just sit back and forget about it? Don't bother trying? Of course not. We simply need to shift our focus. And this is why Jesus tells his church to wake up. He's telling us to get back to the basics, to remember who we are and who we're here for. We're created for relationship. And any deeds done outside of relationship with God are worthless. But everything we do out of relationship with Jesus is like precious treasure that outstrips anything this world can offer. It's about shift of our focus. When we put down our grown upness and when we come to him as little children and do stuff with him, 
that's when it all starts to make sense. You see, God doesn't need us to do things for him. He wants us to be with him. That's why he made us for relationship, not for our manpower. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. What have they received and heard that they needed to return to? I'd suggest the simplicity of the gospel. That it's all about his grace, our gratitude and the infectious dance of life we then enjoy with him, <clears throat> revolving around these amazing truths. We can so easily forget this when we get caught up in our own business and importance. But Jesus's warning is stark. If they didn't wake up, he'd come like a thief. Back to my history lesson. One of the reasons Sardis had been such a great city and traded on such an impressive reputation was that it was incredibly difficult to conquer. Legend has it that on one of the very few occasions it was overcome, it was down to a single soldier who dropped his helmet from the battlement walls. And as he clambered down the cliff to retrieve it, the enemy watched his path back up and quietly followed his footsteps to scale the cliff, arriving like a thief in the night, overthrow the city. So Jesus's threat of coming like a thief would have had special significance to the church in Sardis. They knew what that meant. It would have shocked them because it was threatening their entire existence. Jesus wanted his church to wake up and return to their first love. And this is a theme that we've already heard and we'll hear again in the coming weeks as it reverberates like an echo throughout these letters. And like all the other letters Jesus writes to his churches, it then closes with a promise. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who haven't soiled their clothes. They'll walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now, like many of Jesus's promises, this is another double edged sword. For most this isn't really intended to be much encouragement at all. In fact, it's really just an admission that the vast majority of listeners are dead. But the silver lining for a few listeners here is that Jesus sees those who are standing firm, the few that remain unsoiled. So what does that mean? Well, being soiled implies being corrupted by the culture around us, a lack of holiness, a lack of difference. And remember what we said at the start, there was a high price for being a Christian in Asia Minor. It required standing out from the crowd and taking a stand against the entire system that society was built on. Remember what Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount, that following Jesus looks different to the world. It costs. 
only a handful from the church in Sardis were actually following Jesus. Only a few could truly be described as Christian, little imitators of Christ. But the promise for these faithful followers is beautiful. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. Wow. This is a promise that takes us right back from the last book of the Bible to the very beginning when God walks in the garden with man. A promise that brings us full circle, overwriting all of history and restoring God's original design for mankind. Uncorrupted, uncluttered, unending relationship with him. Jesus is the only one that makes us clean and gives us new clothes. Soiling them is going back to the mud that he's already lifted us out of. That's absurd. But if we remain in him, if we stand out for him and pay more attention to him than our own reputations, then he'll call us his own and will walk with us again. A guy called Kyle Eidelman wrote in a really good book that I read recently called Not a Fan. A consultant is someone whose wisdom we highly value and listen to. But at the end of the day, we make the final decision. That's why they're called consultants. Here's the problem. God doesn't do consulting. Never has, never will. He does God. When we treat him as a consultant, he simply stops showing up for the meetings. The church in Sardis, by that I mean the vast majority of attendees that made up the church, had stopped following Jesus. They were fans of Jesus, but not followers. They thought he was great. They thought Jesus said some cool things, did some great miracles. But when it came to actually picking up their cross each day and following him into persecution, suffering and the unknown, their true identity was revealed. So let's flip that. Are we following him? Or are we simply his fans? Are we treating him like a consultant? Someone whose advice we seek occasionally, mostly after our plans are already made, but make no promise to actually follow his blueprints consistently. Ouch. I'm on this journey of figuring out how to follow Jesus, just like you are. Some days I realise I'm being a fan, cheering him on from the sidelines. But I'm learning to recognise those tendencies a bit quicker than before. And little by little, I'm learning to put down the plastic of this life and seek out the treasure of Jesus instead. As I take his words seriously, and let's be honest, what do we really think we're doing if we don't? I find myself yearning for him, wanting to be with him, dying to the things that displease him. And loving it when I notice that somehow I've managed to bring a smile to his face. I'm taking Jesus's warning to the church in Sardis seriously. 
I'm waking up. I'm spending myself on him. I'm learning to love him with more of my heart, more of my mind, more of my soul and more of my strength. And I'm alive in him. Paul puts it well in his letter to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So is Jesus saying to you today, wake up? Is he warning you that you're relying on your reputation rather than your relationship with him? Is he reminding you that all he really wants is you? Not your good deeds, not your attendance or your attention every now and then, but you. And if he's already got your undivided affection, then is he simply lifting your weary eyes this morning and whispering his promise of walking with you once more? Whatever he's saying to you this morning, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus's words aren't optional. They're commands. So my advice is let's listen together. Let's listen well. And let's do what he says.